Chapter Two, Part One of the Book of Love by Paula Mantegazza. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Morning Crepuscules of Love, the Good and Evil Sources of Love. A human being of a low order or of a simple nature does not feel the energy of that new sentiment called love rise within him until the development of the germinative glands has marked in him the character of the sex and made of that being a man or a woman. On the other hand, in rich and powerful natures, many years before sex has impressed its deep mark on the organism, a vague, mysterious and chaste sympathy attracts the young boy toward the young girl. There, where the sun of the infinite azure of the skies is to rise, one notices a rosy tint lightly projected on the horizon, but sufficient to warn us. There must the greatest star shine some day, the father of all light. The sun is ever the most beautiful among all the beautiful things of the skies, and I have studied with warm and constant affection, watched with religious attention the first crepuscules of that other sun which we are now studying in this book. They appear without being invited by the precocious corruption of books and of neighbors. They rise spontaneously in the heart of the most unconscious innocence. They shine like serene and calm rays of a light that later will be ardent and fascinating. They appear and disappear like flashes of lightning, flashes which noiselessly illuminate the clouds and then leave them darker than before. A vulgar and coarse malignity repeats a blasphemy every day when it asserts that no child is ignorant of the secrets of love. The innocent of childhood is truer, more sincere and deeper than is supposed and lasts limpid and adamantine, even when it has been splashed with the mud of social corruption. The rosy lips of a child may repeat, with an expression of lascivious malice, a jest learned by chance from a maidservant or from a libertine, but that stain does not penetrate into the crystalline nature of the child, and the spray of a fountain will be sufficient to wash the trace away. The malignant rabble is wont to doubt of the innocence of others, just as the wicked is to deny all virtue. In the infantile songs, in the noisy and turbulent games which form the delight of the first age, suddenly a young boy beholds a little girl among a hundred, among a thousand, and an instantaneous sympathy ties the rosy knot of a nameless affection, of an innocent, unwitting love, which may seem at the same time the caricature and the miniature of a sublime picture. I remember having seen an angelic little girl, blonde as an ear of wheat and rosy as the aurora, throw her arms around the neck of a little boy as haughty as a brigand and as dark as a pirate. And the impudent little thing would cover him with kisses, and he would disdain and resent these cajoleries, and she would tell him that she loved him very much, that she wanted to make of him her little bridegroom. A reversed world, a microscopic scene of a chaste Joseph who did not know what woman was, and a Lilliputian woman who, in the innocent ardors of a child disembrace, seemed to be the wife of Potiphar and was nothing but an angel. However, this sudden movement of affection between two children of different sex conceals sometimes a true and real passion which has haughty jealousies, tears and sighs, delirious joys, a history, a future. The beautiful young girls whom a kind or a cruel nature has destined to arouse at every step of life a desire or a sigh, 
often ignore the fact that in the multitude of their adorers there are boys so small as to seem babies, and who kiss in secret the flowers that have fallen from their bosoms, who furtively and mysteriously, like domestic thieves, steal into the little room that shelters the angel to kiss her bed, to kneel on the carpet which that woman treads. That woman, whom they already distinguish above all the creatures in the world, whom they dare already to place on the same level as their mother. And how often a woman who playfully runs her fingers through the locks of a boy laying his head upon her knees is unconscious of a little heart that beats loudly, loudly under those caresses, unconscious, when the child raises his curly head, of the cause of his flush, which does not come from congestion, but from burning with a fire of which he himself is ignorant, but which is love. Those rosy phantoms, which gild some of the most beautiful hours of our child life, seem to last only as long as the morning twilight. And certainly the battles of youth often cause them to be forgotten. And many, with slippery memories and skeptical hearts, when they hear them mentioned, have only words of contempt and gestures of pity for what they are pleased to term infantile lullabies to be relegated among the horrors of the witches and the caresses of the nurse. And yet how often these fleeting phantoms announce the storms of the future, reveal a deeply enamoured nature, and weave the first threads of a long fabric of delirious joys and torments. Some very, very fortunate mortal, on his deathbed, could press the hand of the only woman he had ever loved, whom he had loved when still a child, before he even knew she was a woman. The trembling lips of the dying man could link the last kiss of life with the first noisy, insolent, clumsy kiss on the soft cheek of a ten-year-old girl. And without trying to reach this loftiest sphere of an ideal too far removed from our existence, how often, after a long life hardened by the tortures of a hundred passions, after having lost faith and love, in the dusk of the early evening a last rosy flash of sunset awakened a dear memory, buried many years since, and the heart of an old man throbbed and a tear ran down his wrinkled face. Before the weary eyes a little straw hat had passed, with two blue streamers, but in the depths of the heart what an abyss of dear memories had opened in an instant. In the night of the past, a limpid ray of light had illumined a picture all life and all beauty. An antique cameo had appeared under the pick of the grave-digger, among ruins and dust. And that picture was a childish love, a flower carried away by the turbid torrent of a storm, but preserved by the friendly hand of memory, which, after all, is not always ungrateful or cruel. If you ask a boy why he loves a little girl, he will blush and run away. If you ask the little girl, her face will flush, and she will answer with a sublime impertinence. They love, and they know not why. Ask a precocious rosebud why it wanted to bloom in March, instead of awaiting the warm and voluptuous air of May. Ask a July cyclamen why it did not await the cool breezes of September to perfume the mossy bed in which it had made its nest. They love, and they know not why. In passionate men the first light of love appears sooner, because nature, fruitful and impatient, longs to give her flowers, and an entire life will be for them too short a day to satisfy the intense thirst of love which consumes them. They love soon because they love much, as men of genius, at ten years of age, often conceive that which the masses will never conceive at thirty.
And why, my boy, do you prefer that little girl to all the others? And why, my pretty girl, do you allow yourself to be kissed only by the lips of that dark, impertinent little beau? Because that little girl differs from all the others. Because that dark lad is unlike any other boy. Love, from its first and most indistinct appearance, is selection. A deep and irresistible sympathy of different natures. The recomposition of discomposed forces. The equilibrium of opposites. The complement of dissociated things. The harmony of harmonies. The most gigantic, the most prepotent of the affinities ties of attraction. Aside from the precursory crepuscules of natures most powerful in love, this sentiment, in ordinary men, rises when a new want springs forth under the rod of that magical transformer which is puberty. At that time, on the smooth, pubescent, rounded surface of the infantile nature, a deep crevice opens. A void is formed which woman alone can fill. Then that little, round, smooth fruit called little girl also sheds its childish skin, disclosing the juicy and delicate flesh of the fruit which was hidden in it. Then, from every developed muscle of the virile organism, from every sound of its strengthened voice, from every hair that makes its skin hair suit, there rises a powerful cry which demands in the loudest tone, a woman. And from every flexuous limb of the girl who has become a woman, from every quiver of the hair which makes her proud, from every pore of the young girl who has become a crater of burning desires, arises a cry which demands a man. The passage of the fatal bridge that separates adolescent from youth is one of the epochs most burdened with anxieties, most merry with convulsive joys, and for this I call it the hysterical period of life. I shall illustrate it, perhaps, some day, in a work which I am preparing on the ages of man. I shall here describe with few white strokes of the pen how the necessity of loving makes itself felt to most men. And if I have referred to woman most of the time, it is because she, more chaste, more reserved, and yet a hundred times more in need of love, feels more deeply the shudder which announces to her the appearance of the new god. More innocent than we are, she does not know his nature. More timid, she has greater fear of them. Nature conceded to man common resources almost unknown to woman. And only too often precocious vice makes him acquainted sooner with voluptuousness than with love. When he is chaste, virtuous and impassioned, he also feels the same raging tumult which stirs his soul. He too, sombre, melancholy, frantic, demands of nature which the accents of wrath and plaintive lamentations a woman. To this cry answers, alas, only too often, the first comer. It is impossible for certain natures to resist a long time the tortures of robust and vigorous chastity. The frail human shell would fall to pieces if it persisted in keeping imprisoned an accumulation of forces, all gigantic, all fresh, all ready for the battle. The first love is not slow to appear. And if the neophyte who appears in the horizon lacks more than two-thirds of the desired virtues, love is such a magician that he can create them and transform a worm into God. The maiden in her dreams, by looking at the pictures in the church and within the domestic walls, had fancied a winged man with nothing earthly and material but two lips to kiss. The object desired by her was an angel, all love and all ether 
who would gather under his large folded wings the soul of the young girl and carry it away, through the space of heaven, to a golden region, all light and warmth. The quivering of the wings and the velvet of a kiss were all the voluptuousness which the chaste virgin ever thought of dreaming, and beyond it, an obscure and infinite mystery of which she knew neither name, nor confines, nor form. And instead of this angel, she beholds a man in trousers, with moustaches, who smokes much and slanders women. Perhaps his hair is already turning grey, already he may be a husband and a father, but he is a man. And the youth, too, had dreamed of his angel. She should have been all eyes, all locks of hair, divinely slender, with feet which would hardly touch the earth, eternal smile wreathed in an aureole of light, a soul ardent as fire, and an innocent as pure as the snow that falls upon the summits of the Jungfrau. And instead, she who wakes us from the dream of the night is the provocative, stout maid-servant, who by her contours only, distinct and strong as they are, shows nothing but that she is much of a woman. And instead of wings, she has two sinewy arms and two hands hardened from the use of pot and broom. And far from having winged feet, she pounds the floor with patterns that seem to be sold with iron. But she is a woman. Anything is good and enough for a first love, which is nearly always a million of hunger and a penny of bread. How vulgar is the object of that enamoured young girl's thoughts. The heart of a grocer in the body of a porter. But he is pallid, and the habitude of his stare seems sentimental languor to her. He is ill, and to her his illness appears poetic. He is robust, and for her he is the god of strength. He is arrogant, but to her he is passionate. He is an egotist, and so much the better, for he will love but her, who alone will know how to make him happy. How much poetry the ardent youth has launched to the skies, when he sang the exciting form of a strong peasant woman. How many elegies has he not wept, thinking of the bluish paleness of the choleratic working woman. Woe if seduction accompanies all this texture of lies with which too often the first love builds its nest. Woe if to the inexperienced maiden the aged libertine says, with the accent acquired from long practice, I love you. Woe if the lascivious old woman, satisfying her old appetite with unripe fruit, knows how to warm the innocent youth at the fire of new voluptuousness. Then the fire is kindled, the flames spread, and the first object loved is placed on the altar with vows of eternal fealty, and perfumed with the incense of the maddest, most unrestrained idolatry. The first love is not always born so evilly, but it too closely resembles, alas, these first loves which I have just described. Let us be sincere from the very first steps in our studies, for hypocrisy is the woodworm that in modern society cuts into and corrodes the highest and strongest tree in the garden of life. The original sin of love appears to us with its first cry, and even when we have been forced to use all the artifices of the galvanoplastic to gild our idol, even when the bellows of imagination have worked to inflame the first love, the very first thing we say is a lie. I love you above everything in this world. I shall love you forever. You are my first love, and one can love at once. And a second vow answers the first, perhaps more sacred and more ardent. And in a kiss that is often the sum of two lies, the first hypocrisy is sealed. 
which down to the last generation of the loves of those two beings will seal with an everlasting mark all the expressions of affection, all the cravings of the heart. Be sincere with the first kiss, if you desire love to be the chief joy of life, not the shameful trade of voluptuous lies. Yes, yours is the first love, but because it is the first, it is neither true nor just nor natural that it should be the greatest, the one, the only love. Do not swear falsely, do not perjure yourselves before you know what truth is. To the eternity of your vows, the indifference of tomorrow will answer with a sardonic mocking grin. Before you have really loved, you will sing in every tune that virtue does not exist, that love is a dream, and children and elders at the same time, you will forswear a god whose temple you have never seen. You are, too, a man and a woman, and you say that you love each other, and perhaps it is first love for both. Well, then, during the first days do not swear, if you still value the word of an honest man, and if perjury still has terrors for you. Rarely is the first love true love, as the first book of an author rarely is the true expression of his genius. One is weak from excessive youth as from old age. And the one and first and only love, like many other dogmatic formulas which delight so much that pedantic and hypocritical biped called man, has made more victims in modern society than many crimes and many maladies of body and mind ever did. If your love is the first, so much the better. With hands chastely clasped and lisps modestly conjoined, do not pronounce any other words but these. Let us love each other. If you are among the few unhappy mortals who will love but once, if you are among the very few who in the first woman or in the first man have found the angel seen in the first dreams of youth, thousand and thousand times blessed. The fidelity of the future will cement for life the virtues of your souls. As for myself, if the increased progress of true and healthy democracy should eliminate from juridical institutions the formula of the oath, I would wish that the man and the woman who love each other should never swear. An adjuration less and a caress more, what a delight! An eternity less and a longer caress, what voluptuousness! Nor should chaste and chosen souls throw my book away, feeling hurt by my cynic advice. If they will read the pages that follow, they will clearly see that no one more than I intends to elevate love to the most serene regions of the ideal. And that however high sentiment can ascend, I also feel the strength to follow it. The triple and thick skin of hypocrisy that enwraps us from infancy, the archaic varnish which makes us look polished and brilliant, nearly always forbid us to see the true nature of things and in love we are all unmistakably counterfeiters. The greatest liberty, the greatest sincerity alone can cure us of this malady, which is civil rather than national, because it penetrates every race, every social class. It does not spare the highest and strongest natures. It has become an integral part of every fibre of our hearts, of the framework of all our institutions. End of chapter 2, part 1